This episode is brought to you by Canela Bistro and Wine Bar, serving Spanish plates and over 70 wines from Spain in the heart of San Francisco. Visit us socially at Canela SF and canelasf.com. You're listening to Food, Wine, and the Culinary Mind with Matt Schuster. We're getting inside the brilliant and delicious minds of remarkable culinary individuals. We're telling stories, cutting up, and breaking it down. Welcome to a very special episode of Food, Wine, and the Culinary Mind. This episode is on the food of Burning Man. I had such an incredible time going around to all the different camps and exploring what everybody was offering for food. It really ranged so much and there were so many things to focus on and there were so many interviews that I got that didn't fit into this episode. So be on the lookout for more to come. Because of COVID right now, Burning Man cannot be held this year. So listening to all of the interviews that I did is bringing back a lot of really great memories. It's a little bit bittersweet, but hopefully you will find it more sweet than bitter. Burning Man's pretty shit, but um, the fucking baked goods are amazing. One of the most well-known food camps at Burning Man is the Black Rock Bakery. I had the pleasure of talking to several members of their camp, and it's really a very impressive operation. They are right on the Esplanade, meaning they're right up front in the middle of everything. They are in the French Quarter, which is modeled after the French Quarter in New Orleans and one of the oldest neighborhoods in Black Rock City. We're going to start with a few words from Golden Rose, one of the lead bakers at the bakery. I'm with Golden Rose of the Black Rock Bakery. You came all the way from Brooklyn? All the way, 37 hours. So why did you come all the way out to Burning Man to work making pastries? So most people think of Burning Man as this huge party, like you just go out and get fucked up in the desert, and that's the outside view of it. But once you're here, you get a little more engaged on what actually has to happen in order for any of this to happen. Literally nothing is here beforehand, so someone is responsible for building all the structures, bringing in all the water, all the food. None of this work would happen if people didn't truly love the community to make it happen. What do you think your biggest challenge is going to be out here? Biggest challenge is proofing dough at 110 degrees. Okay, so remember that biggest challenge because that comes up another time later. So now I talk to Justin, who is the lead pastry chef at Black Rock Bakery. Take a listen. How's it going so far? I don't know how to answer that question. What's it like to open a bakery in the middle of the desert and have it work? I don't... That's the feeling I'm having right now. It's kind of like a panda that's trying to drive a race car, and it's really confused about what's going on, but it's doing it pretty well. So it's like, oh, I'm really excited. That's my life right now. Any big snafus so far? No, of course not. Uh, how dare you? I ate all of my snafus. There are no mistakes in the kitchen if you can eat them. <laughs> I'll agree with that. What was on the menu today? So today we had black sesame twice-baked croissants with uh, mushroom truffle biscuits. Uh, yesterday we had matcha financiers with yuzu mousse piped on top and cheesy cornbread muffins. What is the most outrageous thing we could do this year? Let's do that. And next year, let's do something even more outrageous. So how old's the bakery? The bakery is about 10 years old. I took over as pastry chef about two years ago. About 
three years ago and before, uh, people would pay us to make cake for them. And we really decided to decommodify the bakery. So every morning we have people coming in, baking their own cakes. We think that you are a participant, not a consumer. You are a participant of Black Rock City. And baking your own cake is part of that. At the same time, when we gift our baked goods later in the afternoon, that is also a participant thing. We want people to do something. We want them to participate. So if you go into our front room, the thing you're going to see is a bunch of stickers on the wall. And we said, hey, if you're going to get a big good from us, the very least we want you to do is answer a meaningful question from us. People have written the most amazing, nostalgic, sad, anxious stories on that board. It is a cathedral of human emotion. And I absolutely adore that. Mm. Yeah, we were out there talking to the folks in line, and we saw people laughing, crying, certainly enjoying their pastries, but it was more than just standing at a pastry shop uh, waiting in line. You know, one of my favorite articles says something like, by opening up a small town bakery, I got to know people I would never get to know otherwise. And I really feel like that's true for Black Rock City Bakery. You know, this is a small town, we're 70,000 people, and opening up a bakery, opening up this small space where we get to really do something special, I think that really gave me an insight into other people here. Do you think that this is a total shock to people who do not know that you exist, ones that are just passing by and just hopping into line? Well, that's the magic of it, right? Like, this is part of why we debate it for so long, if we want to publish our menu online or not. It's, well, we want to be, like, magical. We want to be a surprise. At the same time, we want people to actually eat this food. So it's like finding that balance, but the most wonderful, magical moments happen where people are like, wait, you just made a twice-baked croissant in the middle of the desert? Are you a crazy person? And I'm like, yes, I am. I traveled with five black truffles in my bag, wrapped up, and I was like, traveling to Black Rock City with that is not the best idea anyone's ever had. But it's those little moments where we get to like share that with people. Do a little theatrics, have a little participation. That's what it's really all about for us. How many pastries do you think you will make over the course of the week? Every day we make about a thousand pastries, 500 savory, 500 desserts. Um, so by the end of the week we'll make 5,000 pastries. Last year we were at about 750 a day, now we're at a thousand a day. Um, so you can see the assembly line here behind you is part of that. Everyone really knows what they're doing. Everyone only came here to get a free cooking class from a pastry shop. And I really appreciate everyone stepping up and doing what they need to do. We are also part of about, I want to say, 50 weddings and birthdays that have booked to come in and bake their cakes. And we're probably going to be more than that number. Well, this setup is insane. It's definitely one of the most useful and professional setups that I've seen on the playa. I really appreciate that. Yeah, so like we have four refrigerators, we have seven prep tables, we trucked in 1,500 pounds of dry ingredients, 800 pounds of wet ingredients, we have three ovens converted to run on propane, which by the way, you don't want to know what it's like to convert from gas to propane. Uh, we have a three-part sink, we have amenities you would expect in a modern kitchen. Uh, I will run an actual bakery like this if I could. This bakery really changed my life in a positive way. It made me break out of my narratives. You're getting back some of that magic that you're giving out to other people. You know, tell me more about that magic. I, like, I'm sitting here in this kitchen, I'm like, sometimes I go peek out the line. I don't know, what, what's inside people's hearts when they eat like a twice-baked croissant or a matcha financier with yuzu mousse on top of it in the middle of the desert? I don't know, this to me is normal, this to me is sane. We're adults, we get to decide that this is like the normal. I can't imagine that when Burning Man started on Baker Beach in San Francisco many years ago, they were thinking about, you know, matcha financier in the Black Rock Desert. So it's really, the, the, the evolution is insane. I mean, that's underambitious, right? Like right now, all you can see is like the matcha financier with Yuzu Moose, and you're like, that's crazy, that's way over the top. 
Next year's gonna be even way more of a cup. Every year we wanna be just a tiny bit more crazy than we were last year. And we could do it, you know? We have an amazing leadership team. Every single volunteer and every single camper are amazing in this kitchen. They're all working their asses off. And next year, we might do frozen desserts on Playa. We might decide to do plated desserts. I don't know. I'm a crazy person. We'll see what's on the menu for next year. Well, Chef, thank you so much for taking the time. Of course, Matt. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. So one day I walked around Center Camp, which is the main camp in the middle of Burning Man, as it sounds, and I asked a lot of people their favorite food memories and food experiences for that Burning Man or previous Burning Mans. I got some really great answers. Take a listen. Any favorite food so far? Oh, fuck yes. I've been on a food tour. So the dumpling trap. Where the hell is that? Dumplings. I think it's like 7.30 and something. Mm. Did you did you know about it or, or you no. stumbled upon it? Um, a girl was yelling dumplings and I said, <laughs> fuck yes. It's called the dumpling trap. It is a trap because they make you sit down and talk to strangers. <laughs> but then you get to eat delicious dumplings and drink tea, so it's amazing. You guys are eating great out here. Yeah, we are. If there's one thing we can control, delicious food. You know what? I'll agree. I'll say an amen to that. Amen, sister. Because here's the thing. It's dusty. It's dirty. You can't shower. Your nose hurts. Eat something good and warm and fills your belly, and you can control that. Can I ask you a question? Yes. Food you've eaten at Burning Man so far or food memory? We went out to Robot Heart last night and we gave away 300 hot dogs that we had made and then we're all pre-made, nice warm hot dog and then we had condiments on the pedicab. I have a rickshaw with the rickshaw trailer and so we had all of the coolers full of the hot dogs with the blanket insulation on them and all the condiments and they were very shocked and surprised to get a snack in the middle of the night or early sunrise rather. One girl fell to her knees and like looked up at the sky and clenched her hands together and was like, thank God, oh my God, I can't believe this is real. I talked to one person who said that they were in the middle of nowhere and got a hot dog and it was the best memory of Burning Man so far. It could have been one of your hot dogs. It could have been us. It could have been you. Very well could have been. So, well, well thank you for doing this. Godspeed. <laughs> thank you. Can I ask you two a quick question? Yeah. Favorite Burning Man food memory or food that you've eaten so far? Probably at the French Quarter years ago when we had that stew. It was really, really good. Oh, it was like late at night. And they asked us to do a trick That's right. for it. And so I proposed. That's right. Oh, my God. And here we are. I would say that's a damn good food memory. Best food or food memory from Burning Man so far? So there was a camp called Bochikawawo. So that was unprompted and unscripted, but it does lead me into my next interview with Camp Bow Chicka Wow Wow. Bow Chicka Wow Wow. We still have to get department health permits and all that stuff. We're technically, I think, a licensed restaurant in the state of Nevada right now. <laughs> I'm here with Stephanie Hua. She is one of the original founders of Bow Chicka Wow Wow Camp at Burning Man. <laughs> so thank you for doing that. Food as a gift is a, is a thing that my life has revolved around, right, right? right? And so it made a lot of sense as my husband and I, we were thinking, you know, what what would we want out there, right? At four in the morning, mm-hmm. deep playa, you know, and for us, the perfect food, it would be bao. So my husband and I are both Chinese mm-hmm. and cha siu bao, steamed pork mm-hmm. buns. Mm-hmm. Um, we were like, this is like the perfect meal mm-hmm. for for out there. You know, it's hot, it's it's sustaining, it's, you know, you it's can steam like, them. It's, it's, it's a, portable. A, a portable, self, self-contained. Self-contained, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's like sweet, salty. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so we're like, let's figure out a way to do that. And so really, 
Bachika Wow Wow, our camp was mm-hmm. born from this idea of gifting steamed buns. Wow. <laughs> and from what I understand, last year you gifted out 7,000 bao? That's right. Wow. Yeah. And they're made here in San Francisco. They are. They're yeah. made here in San Francisco. It's a little mom and pop shop wow. in Chinatown that's wow. down the street from where I live. So h- how did that relationship come come about, <laughs> number one? And number two, do they know exactly like, where it. the bao no. is going? I, I'm pretty like, sure they have no idea what's going on. Or they on. think you're like a caterer and it's like a party. <laughs> no, and like we've a, tried to explain it, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, so they're, they're really good sports fa- how, about how'd, it. How'd you find them? Yeah, so we've actually been going to them for years. Mm-hmm. We live right kind of the cusp of North Beach in Chinatown. Mm-hmm. And um, and just, they're great. You know, we they're our neighborhood, mm-hmm. you know, a little dim sum shop. And, and so we were thinking, you know, because there was no way I was going to make thousands of these myself well right? i mean so, you'd need you'd need a, a commercial yeah. operation to make that happen right it's no. not like you're doing all that on your <laughs> on your on your electric stove at exactly, home exactly yeah you know? so so we thought of them immediately you know and kind of just the first year i think it was a couple thousand mm-hmm. and then slowly but surely it's ramped up to wow. like five thousand seven thousand wow. um, and we just roll up with tons of coolers mm-hmm. like the week prior mm-hmm. and we give them notice so they start making them and they freeze them all for us so Perfect. we bring them up frozen and we mm. pack them in dry ice mm. um, and then they get steamed that's um, a lot of coolers it's a lot of coolers. yeah I think we're I think we're thinking of graduating to like a refrigerated truck next yeah year. yeah I think you, it's would, time. you would yeah. almost have to because you guys want to do ten thousand next year yeah or I think it, the goal the camp goal is to get to ten percent of Burning whoa, Man whoa, that's crazy <laughs> That is crazy. So what are some stories that you remember yeah. f- from gifting these? these oh, bow, I mean, you know? one of our favorite, I think, memories was we brought them mobile a couple of years ago and brought them out to, do you remember the Embrace? Mm-hmm. It was a sunrise burn. So we brought a bunch of bow out for that mm. burn and it was the best breakfast mm-hmm. ever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this year we did a bow ambassador program. <laughs> so we've been mobile. So now you have bow um, gifted on demand, oh, right? Wow. So we brought them out to about 20, 22 different camps this oh, year and just delivered them. And it's always, you know, the delivery aspect I think is it's just so delightful right. because you're not expecting it. Right. It's not like you're going somewhere waiting waiting in line for something, right? right. It's just, it, it again, it's this kind of delightful surprise. It's the joy of gifting. It right? is, it and is. Our camp is, is about 100, almost 150 people wow. now, right? Wow. And And one of the prerequisites of joining our camp is like you have to do bow service. Mm-hmm. And it's the best part, mm-hmm. you know? Like mm-hmm. bow service is the best part. We did this past year brunch bow, so every day at noon mm-hmm. and then every day at midnight. And, you know, it's those are the times when I think people, you know... They like, need that they food, need yeah. Yeah, for, yeah, first of all, they need it, yeah. right? And then second of all, right, it's just it's like just a great party time. Right, right. <laughs> so this year was the first year we did a night, a night market, oh. which was really exciting. And so Wednesday night, we brought together about a dozen other food camps uh-huh. in the area. We're, we're located at 3 and D this year, and so it was the 3 o'clock sector. And it was just so much fun. It was, yeah. you know, all these other camps bringing whatever food gift they were bringing to the playa and we had a night market a full-on night market and it was just it was super fun See, when you go out there and and are gifting out seven thousand bow yeah. it's a good amount of your time yeah so you're not exploring the right people. so it's fun to have them to kind of yeah. have them come to you right yeah. and you gather everyone together yeah i mean yeah it's really great it's just a whole different kind of community right. that has started to build around this this concept yeah it's just it, it's honestly it's amazing to me how much work people are doing out there just based on the fact that 
they're receiving a smile from somebody else. You know, oh. it's magical. You yeah, know? yeah. You've been doing a lot in the culinary world. Not everyone at Burning Man who's doing these really crazy culinary gifts and culinary art has a food background, um, but you do. So I want to highlight that. So you were a food writer. Uh, you had a blog called Lick My Spoon. You went to San Francisco Cooking School. And then you and your husband went down the cannabis route. You have a marshmallow company now called Mellows, making marshmallows. Also, the recent author of Edibles, Small Bites for the Modern Cannabis Kitchen. If you want a shout out to Stephanie, you can find her on Instagram at GetMellows, G-E-T-M-E-L-L-O-W-S. Thank you again. I cannot wait next year to try the bow. Oh, thank you so much. (laughs) My next interview is with Feed the Artists. A a very organized group of chefs and amazing people who are feeding a lot of the artists during Build Week. Build Week is is the week prior to the opening of Burning Man, where, as you guessed, everything is being built. And I was introduced to the camp by Murray and Gemma, a really great couple who are caterers in the Bay Area. And they hosted this crazy dinner in the middle of the desert for there must have been at least 100 people there. Murray, who's a really talented chef, made a giant paella, actually two giant paellas, and I stood with him while he served his guests in the line. And Gemma, his wife, and amazing host, set a giant table with cutlery and plates and candles, and it was really just something so amazing to see out in the middle of nowhere. I've never seen something this elaborate in the dust. Oh, it's not that bad. I I like the blue tuck shirt better than the chef coat for tonight. I mean, it all goes with the kilt and my pretty blue eyes. Murray is one of my favorite people in the world. He's the most loving, caring. He gives everything through food here. Such a beautiful person. Murray and Gemma are the best. I don't know how they do it. So, how, how was it? It was so good. I came back for a second. How can you not? Oh my god, there's so much food, Murray. Oh my god, thank you. Can we take back the yeah, take back the chicken. Thank you. You're I'm going to crush this. I love it. Hey, Murray. This is Jurian. He's one of the camp leads for Feed the Artists. He's going to talk a little bit about what they do. So, Feed the Artists has been uh, on the playa for, I think, 12 to 14 years. And we really got started uh, for the very simple purpose that we saw the artists struggling to get their art done before the gates opened. And often they're working 12, 18 hours straight. They don't have time to eat and they get completely burnt out. So we started making meals as a gift, as an art form, and then driving it out to the playa. Today I'm making a whole Indonesian rice tafel. And when you're cooking together, it's the great equalizer. We're cooking in the desert for artists, and it doesn't matter who you are. Everyone is just here to serve that purpose, and it's, it's, a, great, it's a great binder. And now let's hear from Daniel, another camp lead. We probably serve total burn week, probably about maybe 2,000 artists, meals out there. Uh, so, you know. It's a lot. And our kitchen faces the playa so our chefs and our volunteers can look out over a magnificent scape. This kitchen you will never find on planet Earth that you, with this view. I don't care if you're on top of some skyscraper, but this is the most amazing kitchen view of all. And because this is, this is audio, you have to d- describe it to people. Well, we are on uh, a prehistoric lake bed that is about 20 to 30 miles wide by 95 miles long. It's called the Black Rock Playa. 
and it's ringed by about five or six mountain ranges and you can see um, things actually disappear uh, because of the curvature of the earth so the only where place that happens is probably on the ocean and maybe in salt lake you feel small and you you feel your place on planet earth what we do is not only feed artists but we build a platform for really intimate personal connections when we're cooking the food when we're bringing artists in it's very strong here and we permeate that out to the artists the love floats around the food it floats around us and you know that's big that's big we introduce ourselves we ask the artist to come out to the truck to feed and we say to the artist we want to know about your art so you need to tell us about it it isn't just here's your food and we're gonna buy so very connective all of us come around they describe the art for us they walk around the art they take their half hour 40 minutes of eating and, and talking about it it makes them feel really wonderful and then we just evaporate so i got to ride out with the feed the artist crew a few nights before burning man opened it was a nightly run of feeding artists who were building installations and we came upon an artist who was building a gas station a full-size gas station deep out in the desert called Awful's Gas and Snack. And the artist, Matthew, really got into it. Take a listen. All right, so we are on the Feed the Artist vehicle going out onto the open playa to feed some of the artists. Um, this is a open top truck, and there's food on the bottom, and we're going out for an experience here. Tell me your name. My name is Frank Runderson. All right, Frank, tell me about what you have going on here. Well, I built this nice little uh, tourist stop gas station along the old highway for everybody who wants to taste the good old days, you know. And uh, all these hippies just showed up. I don't know where y'all came from, but sure is nice to see all of you. So what was your inspiration? Well, it's inspired by my grandfather's generation. He was one of the last long-haul truckers in America. One of the, He kept that cab in his driveway till the day that he died. They had to pry the keys out of his cold, dead hands. And he told me all these stories about the open road and the fellowship of the long-haul trucker and, you know, all those things that we lost with the end of the age of fossil fuels. And I just want the kids to remember. Well, I think this is definitely homage to him. And you're going to light it on fire. Excuse me. Any rumors about... Listen, I've had an insurance policy on this building for 10 years... And any changes to that insurance policy were entirely documented by my lawyer, Chip Gypsum, and I won't hear any other vicious rumors. Thank you. So as with many of the art installations at Burning Man, yes, it actually was burnt. And Frank, you did a great job. Thank you very much. So now we move on to meet a really crazy group of burners out of Canada called Midnight Poutine. They are somewhat infamous, and if you haven't had poutine, then now is your chance. Come check it out. I'm here with Sarah of Midnight Poutine. Hi. Tell everybody what's going on. Okay, so we've been uh, going to Burning Man for about 10 years, and we are a Canadian camp, and we serve poutine every day at midnight. So poutine is a Quebecois dish, and it's uh, french fries, cheese curds, and gravy sauce. So how many do you think you will give out tonight? Uh, about 400. That's a lot. That's a lot. We serve about 2,000 poutines per year. 
That's amazing. And it's quite the scene. I mean, there's tons of people here. There's music. Your your crew is dancing. And right now, the sound that you could hear was the Chainsaw Margarita guys who are serving margaritas in the lineup too. Chainsaw Margarita. Yes, Chainsaw. Oh so they God. put a blender incorporated to the Chainsaw and it just blend it and then like serve it to you. It's fucking awesome. That's amazing. Okay, so now walk everybody through what's going on here in the line. Okay, so Charles has the most important role. He's our master fryer. So he's very busy right now. Then we he have has what? One, two, three, four, five, six, six fryer baskets. Six fryers. That's a exactly. lot. Exactly. And then we have one person at the basket. So he puts fries in the basket, one person for the cheese and the bacon, one person for the sauce, and one person who's cooking the sauce. And then we have people in the line to tell me what's going on, like how many people are waiting, when do we need to cut the line, etc. And then we have one person for the beers and the entertainment. It's a lot of work, it's tiring. It's extremely intense, but we love it and it's really rewarding because people just love it. Sometimes it, it looks like we were giving them like heaven. So it's a it's super nice feeling. Thank you, Midnight Poutine Camp. That was a lot of fun. That poutine also really was delicious. So now we're about to talk to Michael Brown from Dust City Diner. Dust City Diner is almost like a desert mirage, and that will make sense as you listen to Michael. Here we go. I'm here with Michael Brown with uh, Dust City Diner. Hi, how are you? Tell me a little bit about Dust City Diner. So the Dust City Diner was created in 2008, and the, the theme that year was the American Dream. And so we thought, what's more perfect besides a diner out in the middle of nowhere? So we built this 1940s style diner. We roll it out to a different place every night, so you, you really don't know where to find it. We serve grilled cheese sandwiches with a pickle, a beautiful coffee urn that we make our coffee with, and our goal is always to uh, create an oasis in the middle of nowhere, just like any diner you would find as you're heading down the highway. So that's, that's kind of the baseline. And because we started it so long ago, it's evolved over the years. And so now what happens is we come out a whole week early because we would like to serve the crews building the big art projects. Uh, and we get a chance to do that. And then when the week actually starts, we gift the diner to different camps and allow them to imagine they just purchased a 1950s diner and they can do whatever they want. So we've had everything from a sushi restaurant. The sushi restaurant was one of my favorites because they took a, a toy train and mounted sushi boats on the toy train and it moved around the counter <laughs> with the fish on it. That, that's amazing. <laughs> it's a funky you know, art piece we made many years ago. So it's got its own little funk. So one of us is always with it and we'll drive it out, we'll set it up for them. And then they are just responsible for the menu. We help fundraise with them so that we can help pay for the food that they're gonna be serving. But the idea is it's a gift to the citizens of Black Rock City. So what are some good memories of years past? The crazy thing is, if you talk to anybody who's ever sat on the Dusty Deep Diner, or if I do, anytime I run into anybody out here and they go, oh my God, you're from the Dusty Deep Diner, there was this one time and everybody has this story about where they were out in the middle, they were exhausted, they were tired, and all of a sudden they rolled up, we served them a grilled cheese sandwich, a pickle, a lot of sass, you know, and we'll spike their coffee if it needs it. The whole idea is... If it, it needs it. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know when that needs it. Um, and it really is just this... It's a place. You know, it's a feeling. It's a. It's an environment. They sit down next to somebody. One of my favorite stories was two people came from two different directions. They literally walked up, sat on the bar next to each other, and one of them said to the other one, what are you hauling? And the other guy said, 
cork and bolts. What are you hauling? And they started this conversation of the two of them as truckers. Like they just assumed this personality for the whole time until they left. Like that was it. They assumed a role. We all assume a role. We all wear beehives. We have our little aprons and we we just are there to have a really good time and just sort of inspire that particular time. The music we play is generally all from the 40s, 50s, and the stuff from the 60s, but is that, you know, we, we use ceramic plates and dishes. We have a dishwashing station. You hear the clanking. There's this whole general feeling of this place. That's, that is real. It is real, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. And surreal. So so <laughs> why, why food? You could gift other things, and why a diner? Why not? <laughs> food is it's your grandmother it's your mother it's just the soul it's that what happens is you've got these the ones who've been up all night partying and they're sitting there next to the people who who are early risers you know the elderly couple that comes in so it's like that's that what you see in a restaurant except they're sitting next to each other so they're talking to each other and they're all burners so they have that automatically they're completely comfortable talking to other people so the conversations are rich and people laugh and it's just just a magic place and it's not like you're at a loss of things to talk about out here. Yeah, exactly. You know? And people don't really ask like what you do for a living. They're asking about your burn. They're asking yeah. about your experience. So explain that. So out here, people, it, it's kind of a, it's. I wouldn't say they let go of what's happening out in the default world, but what they do do is they are present here, and what they do out here is generally a creative endeavor they they've brought a gift it's all about gifting out here and i'll talk to people who've never been here before and they go oh it's a place where you barter with people and it's like no you don't barter you never expect anything in return you're always there to give a gift to somebody i mean the gift can be as simple as riding your bicycle down the street and smiling at someone what i hope is that and i try to encourage people out here it's like when you leave and you go back to wherever you're from continue that give that gift tell somebody their shoes look fabulous do you know anything like that raise everybody's spirits it's so simple to do and we get so caught up in our like our grind and we're not in the grind out here we're in the moment completely in the moment so one of the most heartfelt things you can do for someone is cook for them right is to take the time cook them something and sit down and watch them enjoy it so that is in essence what you're doing but in a mobile version here at Burning Man right one of the you know fun things about building that was how do we make it how do we make it so we can move it around and place it because it's going to be in one place all night so we know that we you know we can basically set it up so it can do that we're working off of propane we're working off all the water we carry out the refrigeration is basically ice chests keeping everything cold so, so all that kind of comes into this sort of the infrastructure of getting stuff out here then the magic really is just sort of like okay we're there we're all going to be here we're going to cook you up something we're here it really is about just being with other people and just sharing that that time and being really present. Yeah, and, and you know, in an environment where people sometimes forget to eat or, you know, they're too busy, like, looking at all the art and meeting people to feed themselves. And so to have someone come up, you know, almost instinctively and just say, hey, you look hungry. Here's something to, here's something delicious to eat, not just, not here's like a granola bar, you know. So I really commend you. Thank you. Thank you for, for doing this. Saturday. How many years has it been? Well, it, uh, last year was our was the 10th birthday of the Best wow. Wow. Yeah. Well, well, happy birthday. Thank you. And uh, thank you, Michael, for, for, for talking with My me. My pleasure. My pleasure. Truly. Again, one of the hardest things you can do out there is bake. And I love talking to bakers because they are so meticulous 
and so many times anal, which is a good thing for baking, but it's crazy to take such a controlled process and put it out into a place where there is little to no control. So let's meet Walt from Love and Oven and see how they make bread. Bread has always been somewhat magical to me because when you think about some of the greatest breads from all over the world, they have such few ingredients. I mean, think about it. Uh, water, uh, salt, uh, yeast and flour. And look at the variety of breads that get made by just adjusting the kind of flour. You know, even the, the kind of salt for some people, where the yeast is from, you know, uh, whether you're using natural yeast. We have to accommodate unusual conditions here. The very things one as a baker that you would like to have control over, we have no control over here. When I bake, I want to know I have some control over temperature. The temperature of the room I'm building the dough in, the, the temperature of the proofing, all of these things have a huge effect. Um, the timing, uh, I, I like long proofs where I can cool the dough way down in a refrigerator. Well, out here, we don't have any control over temperature. We don't have any control over humidity. And by the way, we don't have a lot of control over the people that do this every day. It's done in an organized way, but at the same time, it's done in a plyo way. And somebody forgets that they're supposed to fold the dough before they go to sleep. Or somebody that was supposed to build the dough at uh, 5 in the afternoon, oh, they get home from something and there it is, 10, and they have to do it then. And you'd say, well, 10 isn't that plenty of time. Well, because Nobody here will get up early enough to make the dough and then bake the same day because everybody's out so late. We have to build our dough hours and hours before the ideal time. So one of our challenges is to slow the whole process down. We use less yeast. We try to keep the dough boxes in the shade. At night when it's cold, we pull them out. Anything to slow that down. But we're dealing with often young people that are joyous and excited. This is a, a world of wonder out here and they need and have to go out and explore and sometimes, well, we just deal with it. <laughs> so how many people do you think you serve? How much bread do you think you make during the course of Burning Man? We baked a, a one-third test bake today and now we've sent those breads out as gifts to camps. Tomorrow's our official opening. We begin serving bread around 10.30 and we serve until two. When we finish our last bake, which will be on Sunday, we will have served 10,000 portions. Wow, that, that's amazing. I mean, coming out here and doing it on that scale out of your own heart and out of your own pocket is, is always amazing to me because it takes a lot of work. One of the reasons for me, I joined this camp six years ago it's because there's something symbolic about the desert and bread. Uh, in the Bible, for example, you hear about breaking bread. It, it, it was always the gift to the stranger. And in talking about symbolism, bread shows up in cultures and religions everywhere. I mean, even the wafer, the body of Christ is unleavened bread. The challah on Friday night for uh, the Jews is, is tradition. In, in the arts, uh, um, a jug of wine, a loaf of bread, and, and thou. Um, 
uh, prisoners. You will live on nothing but bread and water. And you can go on and on and on. And the surprise that you see, the delight you see in people in the desert out here on the playa being handed that little warm piece of bread where it's least expected. It, it's, a, it's a gift for us more than them, but it, it's a pretty wonderful, uh, well, surprise to all who come to visit us. Any special memories from over the years that you've been part of the camp? I would say some of the special memories is I love it here. I mean, I just love Burning Man. I love the culture, love the people, love what it has taught me. But some, some of my strongest memories are the bad memories. We have fought one oven after another. Uh, we started with literally a coal-fed oven, and it was this long tube. You filled it with coal, and you lit it, and it had this rack, and you could get two um, baking trays in there. And the one that was way in the back to reach in there, the number of burned forearms in our camp, <laughs> scalded. Right. And also that was just one disaster after another and it was slow, we could never keep up with the crowd. So then we got gifted a high-tech oven. It was an old piece of shit and we could never get it to work. It was a deck oven. And so in a panic, they take my paella burners and they put those underneath the deck. Oh. They way overheat it and soot's everywhere. And the soot is going up in the air and then the winds come up here as they normally do. And it blows the soot back into the furnace and we get black dots all over our bread. Now, today for the very first time, we cooked on our brand new Blodgett commercial convection oven and this is a major investment for the camp and we can now uh, bake 10 pans at a time so we're very excited about that so this I hope will be a great memory and, and so you have that oven hooked up to propane it's a combination of electricity and propane there's a quite a, a, a large motor that drives the convection fans and propane for the heat mm. and so the inaugural run it did well it did well. Uh, there are some adjustments I already want to make for tomorrow's bake. We're using a brand new flour this year. It's a high gluten flour um, that it's high protein also for long fermentations. And I chose that because our fermentations are long here. We make the bread, the dough the day before and we don't deal with it till the next day. So I'm hoping this will help us develop a, a better product. And for me, that's part of the fun. I, you know, Anybody that cooks or bakes, part of the, the, the great pleasure is trying to, uh, it's trying to figure out, how can I do this better? You know, what can I do to make this just a little bit better? Thank you so much for taking the time to, to share your story and your thoughts and what Lovin' is and what it means to the playa. I really appreciate it. Matt, it's been a lot of fun. As the final interview, we go to Camp Abstinent. And this was another camp that when I was interviewing people around center camp, somebody said that I couldn't miss. And by the time that I had found out about them, I, I was only there for one more day. And just as luck or Playa Magic had it, I managed to be in front of Camp Abstinent and I walked in, asked if they wanted to do an interview and it was the right time. So I ran back to my camp, got my equipment and headed back. This is a really great opportunity to learn about absinthe. Rob, one of the, the camp leads, really does a great job explaining absinthe and the process and how they flavor them. It's, it's just really super interesting to listen to. So I hope you enjoy it.
I'm here with Rob from Camp Abstinence. This camp, Camp Abstinence, is made up of a bunch of absinthe enthusiasts who we all make our own absinthe and every year bring it here to the playa and give it as our gift. This bar is one of the oldest operating bars on the playa. It's been in existence since 1998. Tell me a little bit about absinthe for somebody who doesn't know. Sure. Absinthe is a drink that dates back to around the 1800s or so. It was popular in Europe. It has uh, quite a history and lore to it. So a lot of people think that if you drink absinthe that it has uh, psychedelic properties and would make you see the green fairy uh, or it was what made Van Gogh cut his ear off. Turns out the chemical that's in absinthe that people thought was responsible for this is called thujone. And when they studied thujone, they found that it actually is not psychoactive. And they think what was more likely the case was that um, lead poisoning and high, high alcohol proof in the drink. So the combination of those two things was uh, really responsible. Absinthe in the United States uh, was not sellable for a really long time until about 10 years ago or so. Um, in France, they had lobbied to get absinthe banned because it was competing with the wine industry. And that kind of took on a, a global phenomenon after that. So for the longest time, you could not get absent here. You could make it, but you could not sell it. So once that legislation passed, now you can again buy commercial absent here. You all do how many different infused absinthe? This year we have 46 on the menu. Traditionally, absinthe is made with wormwood, fennel, and anise. And those three things would give you an absinthe blanc. If you take a second step, uh, what people call a coloration step, you can add things that have chlorophyll, which give it its characteristic green color. So mint, uh, basil, tarragon, things like that. Um, and on our menu, we certainly have a number of traditional absinths, but from there, so like everything these days, beer and wine and, and other spirits, we've really kind of diverged and started to get more creative. So on our menu, in addition to the traditional absinthe, we have a number of herbal absinths where we use herbs that are not commonly found in absinthe, things like shiso or ginger, cinnamon, and other things like that. From there, we move on to spice, which is spiceful, not spicy. And there we would add additional spices in and get uh, different flavor profiles. We move on from there to what we call picante, which is our our hot absinthe and we start with a relatively mild jalapeno infused absinthe and take that all the way up to the Carolina Reaper which is currently the hottest pepper in the world so I think we have the hottest absinthe in the world here at uh, Camp Abstinence so a lot of fun from there we move on to our fruity absinthe and in these the anise is usually backed off because it's not necessarily a compatible flavor with the other things that we're doing. So we have absinthe that's infused with plums, we have absinthe that's infused with strawberries and figs, um, and a lot of other flavors, and these are hugely, hugely popular. You'll never find them in a, in a commercial absinthe. It's something you can only get here at Burning Man. We have a couple of coffee and tea flavored absinthe. Then we move on to our dessert flavors, including cookie dough. Absinthe is a really high proof alcohol. Most absinths are between 120 and 150 proof. We don't want to serve something that strong, and traditionally, you know, people didn't serve it that strong. So what we do is we have a special spoon that has slots in it that sits over top of the glass. We set a sugar cube on there, and the sugar was, was traditionally used to cut the bitterness of the wormwood, but as the distillation process got better, there's less of that bitterness in, in modern absinthe, but the sugar cube is still held over. We use it with most of our absinths here, and we'll 
drip cold water onto that sugar cube and until it dissolves into the drink. And that does two things. One, it sweetens it, and two, it lowers the proof. And with a traditional absinthe, as you lower the proof, eventually the oils in the anise and the fennel will drop out of solution and the absinthe will go cloudy. And that phenomenon is called the louche. And that is a characteristic of, uh, of a decent absinthe. You'll also see that same thing happen if you were to drink ouzo or to drink Pernod. When you add water to them, they go cloudy. Wow. Thank you for that very in-depth uh, description. That's, that, that's very thorough. And it was very thorough. I hope you learned a few things today, and I really hope you enjoyed this episode of Food, Wine, and the Culinary Mind. It was a really fun episode for me to record out there at Burning Man. I want to thank everybody who participated and helped with this project. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Food, Wine, and the Culinary Mind. Find us on all things social at Culinary Mindcast and on the web, canelasf.com backslash podcast. Don't forget to rate us where you found us. <laughs>